I'm looking at the clock, it's already 10 after 8, and this is a long chapter. And I'm, you know, again, too, I, I can stop in different sections depending upon the king. But I think I, I'm going to go through it, but I'm going to go through it in a kind of a, a more of a summary fashion because, and actually, the way First Kings deals with a lot of these kings, it really is summarizing the lives of some of these kings. There'll be more detail as the, you know, in some of the later chapters, but also too when we get to First and Second Chronicles, as we saw last week, sometimes there's even more detail that is omitted here in First Kings. So in chapter 16, it says that the and and, and just to remind you what's going on. You know, the way 1 Kings is going from this point forward or a chapter or two back is that now that Solomon has, has died and then his son Rehoboam was king and the kingdom is divided at that point and basically Rehoboam is, uh, and the, you know, the, the kings of Judah are responsible for two tribes and they're known as the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel initially is reigned by a guy named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And as a result, God actually was wanting to make a covenant with Jeroboam and wanting again too to, to show favor, but Jeroboam quickly establishes idolatry. And Israel, the other 10 tribes of the nation, of the 12 tribes, the other 10 tribes, they go that route. And what we're here in chapter 16 is a, a, a naming of these different kings of Israel because in the previous chapter, we looked a little bit at the life of Asa. And so now during the course of his reign, the author is focusing on the kings of Israel during the time of Asa's life. So chapter 16 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha. And actually, it, it identifies who Jehu is. He's the son of Hanani. And Hanani is actually the prophet from the previous chapter, who confronted Asa. And I don't know, it mentions him in, in 1 Kings chapter 15, but it mentions him in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. So I find it interesting, sometimes the details that you just read over because you just think, okay, who is this guy? And Jehu is actually going to be mentioned a couple of times in the chapter here because he lives during the, the reign of Asa the king, and he is also going to be confronting some of the kings of Israel. Not of Judah, but of Israel. And so it says that the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, For as much as I exalted thee out of the dust, and made thee prince over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and has made my people Israel to sin, to provoke me to anger with their sins, behold, I will take away the posterity of Baasha." It's an old King James fancy way of saying, I'm going to cut off your household and all your descendants, your posterity. I'm going to take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make them like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Him that dies of Baasha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dies of his in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Now the rest of Baasha... And what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha slept with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah, and Elah, his son, reigned in his stead. So it's interesting because Baasha is compared to, even though he's not re related to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
And each king has an opportunity. You know, and the Lord basically says, you know, I exalted you out of the dust. The psalmist in Psalm 75 says that it's God that raises up one and puts down another. And so even though in the previous chapter, I believe Baasha had assassinated his predecessor, the Lord is basically now confronting him because he could have, again, been a leader that would have turned the nation of Israel, the ten tribes, back into a relationship with God. But instead, he continued to follow the same pattern that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, followed in his idolatry. And basically what God says through the prophet um, Jehu is that if you're going to follow that same pattern, then the consequences of your sin are going to be the same as well. Because with uh, uh, Jeroboam, God basically cuts off his lineage. And so Baasha is going to suffer the same consequence. In verse 3, I'm going to take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make his house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So that's consequence number one for his sin. But consequence number two for his sin is mentioned there in verse four. That he that dies of Baasha in the city, the dogs will eat. And if he dies in the field, the fowls of the air would eat. And it's interesting because normally when a person would die, in biblical times, they were normally buried the same day. So the judgment of God goes even further because the judgment of a body that goes unburied and to allow the dogs or the birds to eat the remains was a shameful was a, was shameful and a disgrace and God's judgment and curse in a sense was on that person i mean it's severe not only after he's been deprived of his life but again to the shame of it to you know again to allow the animals to just pick at his carcass so that's the the judgment and, but again too the sin was so severe that God is wanting in a sense to instill fear in the heart of his people I mean sometimes we don't respond to the love or to the grace of God and again it, it points out how God was gracious in lifting him up but instead he just continued to walk in the same sinful ways and I think so many times we take advantage of the grace of God and sometimes what is necessary is severity the, the the judgment of God at times has to be severe I think Paul talks about the severity of God in Romans chapter 11 and he's talking about it in regards to the nation of Israel because of the rejection of Jesus the Messiah and at the same time, he is talking about in Romans chapter 11 how the Gentiles, because the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that we as Gentiles have been grafted into this, you know, olive tree that God has made. But at the same time, there is a warning to us then as Gentiles. And he says in verse 20 that because of unbelief, the Jews were broken off, that you might stand by faith. But he says, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness, you know, it's a good thing that God grafts us in, but it also says, and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you shall also be cut off. 
I know that we're secure in our salvation as believers. But we're never to take the grace of God as a license to sin. Oh, God will forgive. You know, I'll do my own thing and God will forgive. And I can't tell you how many times I've encountered that amongst believers who are doing something that's sinful. Or doing something that, again, too, they feel like they have a liberty to do. Or, again, too, you know, and I think back years ago when we were living in Oceanside, there was a, a couple in the church. They lived across the street from us. Actually, a number of couples, families from the church all lived within a, a, a two-block stretch of, you know, Calvary Way, I think. <laughs> the name of the street was Freeman, but we just kind of jokingly referred to it like, you know, Calvary Chapel or Calvary Way because of the families that were there. But there came a point where this woman just decided she was going to divorce her husband. And the leaders of the church asked her, well, you know, is there something going on? You know, has he been unfaithful to you? Does he beat you? Does he, oh, no, 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 I'm just tired of him. I'm tired of, you know, I'm just tired of him. She'd been married to him for a while. And, 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 and again, too, it's true. In many ways, he was just this immature guy and just, you know, took advantage of her. But those aren't biblical grounds for divorce. And the interesting thing was, was when she was confronted and said, well, sorry, yeah, yeah, he's a slug, but you still have to remain married to him. And she said, well, you know what? I know God will forgive me. I mean, you can't, you know, willfully say, I know it's wrong. I know it's sin. You know, God's word doesn't give me, allow me to do this, but I know God will forgive me. You know what? You're taking advantage of the grace of God. And in a way, every time... You know, it reminds me of the book of Revelation where I think it's actually speaking of to one of the churches and that woman Jezebel, and again to its drawing, and Jezebel is actually going to be introduced in our chapter here. She's the wife of Ahab. But you know, I think it's the church of Thyatira and the Lord says, and I gave her space to repent. See, God doesn't always judge right away, but he does again to send that conviction and he sends his prophets to confront and he's looking for a person to respond to that. And if a person does respond to that conviction, then there is forgiveness. Sometimes there's consequences to the sin. We saw that in the life of David. Because again, too, when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, and it took a while for David to get there, and David describes it in the Psalms. And he describes how spiritually he dried up inside. His vitality had turned into the drought of summer. And, and again, too, he knew that he was out of the will of God, but he just couldn't bring himself to that place of repenting until Nathan confronted him. And you know the story. We went through it. And it's when then a person confesses their faults, their sin in humility, without making any excuse that God forgives. But if not, you know, God gives space for repentance, but if a person doesn't repent, then the judgment comes. And the judgment has come for Baasha, the king of Israel. And his, his son Elah is the one that reigns afterwards in his stead. And in verse 7 it says, And also by the hand of the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, came the word of the Lord against Baasha and against his house, even for all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands. That's an old King James way of saying making idols. In, the be, in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed him. And in verse 8 it says in the 20 and 6th year of Asa. See Asa is the reference point 
to all these kings. So in the 26th year of his reign, king of Judah, began Elah, the son of Baasha, to reign over Israel in Tirzah. Two years. So he only reigns two years and the judgment of God is coming upon the house of Baasha and including his son Elah. And in verse 9 it says, And his servant Zimri, captain of half of his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirzah. And Zimri went in and smote him and killed him in the twenty and seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his stead. I think the, the point that stands out in the life of Eli, even though it's a short-lived life, is that the judgment comes when he is drinking himself drunk. I mean, again, too, so many places in the Scripture warn against drunkenness. And again, you know, the fact that he is put to death in this drunken state, again, just illustrates where he is at and his sinful heart and the judgment of God is righteous. You know, sometimes things happen and people wonder, well, you know, how come God's doing this to me? Or how come we had some friends, and again, too, you know, I'm just going to share this story. You can draw whatever conclusions you want. But we had some friends uh, that were women. And when we lived in California, they liked to go to the clubs. And, you know, it's like, well, why are you, you know, why would you do that? You know, there's alcohol and there's just, it's a party scene and all this stuff. And, and they liked to dance, and again, too, they liked the nightlife kind of a thing, and they were young. And the interesting thing is that one of these times, we just keep thinking, it's just a matter of time before something happens at one of these clubs. And one of the times I think my wife was talking to him because one of them was my wife's friend, you know, they came out from one of these clubs and their car had been broken into, and I think the stereo was stolen or something like that. And they were just, you know, so angry and upset. And why would this happen to us? Well, maybe if you weren't at the club, you wouldn't, your car wouldn't have been broken into. Again, too, I think sometimes the things that happen, they have a, a direct correlation to what we're doing. And God, in a sense, is warning or wanting to stop. And for for uh, this guy, Eli, he, he, I'm sure he knew of the, the prophecy of Jehu, and yet he doesn't repent himself, and as a result, he ends up being judged as well. And Zimri is the guy that ends up being king in his place. So now we've seen um, Baasha, we've seen Elah, and now Zimri, who's an entirely different family, than the family of Baasha. And Baasha's family is entirely different than the family of Jeroboam. So now, again, too, the succession of kings in Israel is just being spread out over different families, whereas the succession of the kings of Judah will all come from the lineage and of the family of David. And so in verse 11, it says that it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he sat on his throne, this is Zimri, that he slew all the house of Baasha. And he left him not one that, Old King James says, that pees against the wall. That's very descriptive way of saying a guy. I think in the newer versions it just says a guy. But, you know, only guys can do that against a wall like that. And over in Israel, in biblical times, there were lots of walls. You know, it's just like, I'm not going to get any more graphic than that. Although I think about the ruins at 
Oh, where are they? Where they got those outdoor? Where? Betshian. And you go there and they've got places for you to sit or to pee against the wall there. And it says, neither of his kinfolk nor of his friends. And it says, thus did, so Zimri is executing judgment and fulfilling the prophecy that Jehu had spoken against the house of Baasha. And it says, thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spake against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha, the sins of Elah his son, which, were, which they sinned, and by which they made Israel to sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. That word is going to be used in verse 13 and in verse 26. Vanities, it means a vapor or a puff of smoke. And he's talking about the king's of Israel provoking people to worshiping these gods, which in a sense, they're not really gods. They have, you know, the psalmist says this in Psalm 115 and in Psalm 135. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. You know, they have feet, but, you know, they have to be carried any place you might take them. We spend some time in prayer, and the reason why we pray before this study because we have a God that is living and we believe that he hears, that he sees, and that he acts upon the prayers of his people. And so when the, you know, the Bible talks about God's judgment, because again, too, they're making these idols and God's just simply calling them vanities. There's no real substance to them. There's just a puff of smoke in a sense. It makes, me, it makes me think of, again, too, when you make a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea and the little bit of steam that rises up. And it's just there for a minute, but then it's gone because, again, too, it just, it's just a, it's a vanity. And that's the way he describes these false gods. And it says in verse 14, Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Next king, verse 15, during the time of Asa still. And it says, in the 20 and 7th year of Asa, king of Judah, did Zimri. So we saw, you know, Zimri's the guy that, that, that killed, um, um, the guy that was drinking himself drunk, Elah. And it says uh, uh, that he reigned in seven days in Tirzah. He only reigned for seven days. Poor guy. <laughs> and it says, And the people were encamped in Gebethon, which belongs to the Philistines. So the scenario, and we saw this, it was actually mentioned in the previous chapter. The scenario is the armies of Israel are laying siege to this Philistine city. When all this takes place of Zimri killing Elah and conspiring against him while he is drinking himself drunk. And, it, and as a result, when the people hear about it, the armies hear that you know, their king in Israel had been put to death by Zimri, it says that in verse 16, that the people that were encamped heard say that Zimri has conspired and that he has slain the king. Wherefore, all Israel made Omri the captain of the host king over Israel that day in the camp. And Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with them, and they besieged so this is where Zimri is. And basically what they're doing is, is they're turning on Zimri. In a sense, he was only king for seven days, but they want judgment for him because he had killed the previous king. So they decided that Omri, the captain of the army, would be king instead. And so they 
lays siege to the city of Tirzah, and it's a short-lived siege. It only lasts a few days. But it says that in verse 18 that it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the palace of the king's house and burnt the king's house over him with fire and died for his sins which he had sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he did to make Israel to sin. So basically what happens is when Zimri realizes there's no chance of him winning and that the city is overrun by the armies and the forces of Omri, he basically blockades himself in in a citadel and burns it down with himself in it. But the thing is, the scripture tells us that he was also walking in the same steps of Jeroboam. And it doesn't mean that he was walking in the same steps of Jeroboam for just those seven days. It means that he's been walking in the ways of Jeroboam and God is judging him for that. Verse 20, and it says, Now the, act, the rest of the acts of Zimri and his treason that he wrought, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people that followed Omri prevailed because the people that followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, uh, uh, prevailed against the people that followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. So there's kind of a, you know, a vote going on ultimately. You know, initially they wanted Omri to be king, but then some of the people wanted Tibni to be king. But when the, the, those that wanted Omri to, to be king prevailed, then Omri is established and he put to death Tibni just so that there wouldn't be any future confusion or problem. Verse 23, in the, the thirty and first year of Asa, king of Judah, began Omri to reign over Israel. Twelve years, he reigned for twelve years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, and he bought the hill Samaria of Shemer for two talents of silver and built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill of Samaria. It's interesting because Omri... Again, he's mentioned here, but he's mentioned in other places. And he's mentioned also to reference in the scripture at times, uh, the, the, the northern tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel is called the house of Omri. Just because even though he reigned for 12 short years, um, not in a spiritual sense, but he was impressive as a king of Israel in the things that he accomplished. It tells, I was reading one of the commentaries, it says that he invaded Moab and that he figured prominently in an alliance at stopping the westward advance of the rising power of Assyria. His exploits are commemorated in the Moabite stone and the Assyrian annals. Indeed, he was so important to the, uh, that, to the Assyrians that they called Israel the house of Omri long after his death. Yet the author of Kings describes little of Omri's achievements because he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, again, too, this is great. Uh, uh, interesting from a biblical standpoint because even though he, in a sense, accomplished a lot of things as a king, his life is reduced to just whether or not he was a follower of God and whether or not he did that which was right or whether or not he did that which was evil. And he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The other thing that's interesting a thing about Omri is the son that he has. And up until this point too, 
you know, it says in verse 25 that Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. I mean, it's one thing to introduce idolatry, but it's another thing to, again, to be God to call him. He, he did even worse than the previous kings, especially Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Verse 26, it says, For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the, in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. You know, this is one thing I'll just simply say, and I brought up this point before, but I'll mention this again. Just because as a new believer, when I used to read through these things, and I, I'd read Samaria, and I'd scratch my head, and I'd like, well, isn't the Samaritans? Yeah, I know that, but what does that have to do with Israel? It's another way of referring to the ten tribes of Israel. Also, too, there are going to be times that in the Scripture they're referred to as Ephraim, the whole tribe of Ephraim, because, again, too, there are certain times in Israel's history that those ten tribes, the, the family that is strongest as far as its reign or influence in the northern kingdom is Ephraim, so it's referred to as Ephraim. So it's interesting because as you read the Old Testament, at times it's called Israel, at times it's called Samaria, at times it's called Ephraim. So again, to, when it refers to it, you know, that, that, that he was buried in Samaria, it means that he was buried there in uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And it says that Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. Ahab is a bad king. Ahab is a bad... Was that like a compassionate... Oh, yeah, he was a bad king. Sorry. There's no way to, no way to soft sell this. And all these are bad kings, but Ahab is a bad king. And in verse 29, it says that in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, and again, to Asa's mentioned, the, the, where he is at in his reign, 38 years, that's when Ahab becomes king of Judah. And it says that Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 20 and 2 years. So his reign is 22 years long. Verse 30, it says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. I mean, Jeroboam, like I said, was the benchmark for how evil they did. It likens many of the kings to be like him. Then Omri did worse than everybody else. And then his son Ahab does even worse and does more sinful things and evil in the eyes of the Lord more than everybody else before him. In verse 31, that it came to pass if it had been a, a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. You know, Jezebel, we, who hasn't heard of Jezebel? Jezebel. You guys are Christians, you, you know, it is kind of a, a name that you ascribe to a, a, a wicked woman. And Jezebel was a wicked woman. Even, too, it's interesting for me. And I think about high school when I had to read the Shakespearean play Macbeth. And when I think of Jezebel, I think of Lady Macbeth. And I don't know that Shakespeare maybe even had Jezebel in mind. But she 
and Ahab together formed this married wickedness that is ruthless. And as a result, you know, that's part of the reason why the scripture tells us that he did even more evil in the sight of the Lord, more than anybody else, that he marries this woman who is this Baal worship. You know, part of the worship of Baal in, included human sacrifice. They're sacrificing their infants to their god Baal. But the other thing that's interesting about Jezebel, you know, again, too, from the notes or from a, a, one of the commentaries, it says that her father was both king and priest of Baal in Sidon, the city of Sidon. And it says, similarly, Jezebel was princess and priestess of Baal. Her Phoenician name was Abiaziel, meaning my father Baal is noble. But it says that the Hebrew scribes deliberately dropped a letter from her name. Thus she would be known forever as Jezebel, a dishonorable name, meaning lacking honor. This is who she marries. And the interesting thing that we'll see is that she is capable of great wickedness. I mean, we're going to see this, I think it's in chapter 21 or 22, and you know, Ahab wants this particular patch of, I think it was garden or herbs or something like that from another guy, and, and he basically said no, and the king's offering to buy it or trade him a better piece of land. He wants this piece of land because it happens to be right next to his pal palace, and, and he's, he, he throws himself on the bed, and he's kind of moping, and Jezebel comes in. What's the problem? Well, you know, so-and-so wouldn't sell me his property. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll get it for you, honey. She comes up with this plan where the guy is put to death, falsely accused, and then taken out in stone, and then she comes back and says, come and see your vineyard. I mean, that's the kind of woman that Jezebel is. I mean, she is, I mean, Ahab's a bad king because he comes from the, again, to his father was a wicked king. But this is like a, you know, you've heard of a match made in heaven. This is a match made in hell, the two of them, and the judgment of God as a result that comes. And it says that he married her and that he served Baal and worshipped him. In verse 32 it says that he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel the, the Bethelite build Jericho. And that's significant because again too, when the children of Israel come into Jericho, God's intent was that it would never be built. And there was a judgment then that was pronounced of anybody that would try to rebuild Jericho. And the judgment was that the foundation would be laid in the person's firstborn and that the gates would be uh, put up as a result of uh, their son as well. And it says that Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho and he laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. I mean, almost 500 years have gone by, and God had pronounced this judgment. And again, too, it's just amazing, the accuracy of God's prophecies. But the judgment of God, and if you do something to defy God, then the judgment comes, even if it's hundreds of years later. Like I said, you know, this section with these kings that are mentioned, especially the kings of Israel, it's kind of a bummer, you know? 
But at the same time, it's good to know these things. And again, too, for the person that thinks that, you know, and it's true, God is love. But God's also to be feared. He's righteous and he's just. And he shows mercy, but when that mercy is either taken advantage of or if a person deliberately walks in willful disobedience, the judgment of God comes. He holds, whether it's a, a man or whether it's a king, to that standard. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, for this chapter, and as we are reading through it, Lord, let it speak to our hearts in the way, Lord, that you want pray that it would make application. And again, even if it just instills in us a reverence for you, then that's a good thing, Lord. We love you, and I pray, Lord, your blessing upon your people. And I ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.